God is at work through His local church and through the teaching of His Word. This morning on MyBridge Radio, we are pleased to share a favorite message from Carney E. Free. Here's Pastor Adrian Boykin. I want to ask you to put on your thinking caps with me here today as we do a little bit of what would be called historic theology, understanding the ways that the church, the people of God, have interacted with culture across the generations. And historically, the church has engaged the broader culture in many different ways. I want to give you four paradigms today for the way the church has done that, and I'll give my hand along the way as I will state pretty clearly what I think the church should be doing in terms of our paradigm, our model as given from Jesus for reaching the world around us. Now, the first way that the many Christians across the generations have sought to reach the, the community or have uh, sought to engage in the community around us is to be like kind of an alternative fortress. That the world is over here, and we will build a fortress over here, and this fortress hopefully will serve as an alternative to the world over here. And in the fortress mentality, the thinking is kind of, Two, four, shut the door. We're not really sure if we want any more. The fortress mentality um, has some value in this. It is an acknowledgement that I want to protect me and mine. Anybody else? Okay, we all want to protect me and mine. I do too. And there's certainly value to protection. But the problem with the fortress mentality is when it's practiced for too long, it can put us in a little Christian bubble where we're on an island of sorts, only surrounded by other Christians, only listening to Christian music, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. You can play that out. And we're on an island where we're, instead of in the world, not of the world, we're neither in the world nor of the world. Does that make sense? That's a common way that some Christians have said, we will be the kingdom of God. just an alternative fortress out here. Now, another way that is very, very common is this. Many Christians across the generations, and especially right now, I've noticed, many people want to engage the world as a force. This force mentality that I will build up a coalition, and the coalition will mostly be founded on the things that I am against, as opposed to the things that I am really for, and people will learn pretty quickly what we are against as Christians. And we rise up kind of in battle within the force mentality. And I understand the allure of this as well because there are alternative ideas out there that are not good. And I want to be opposed to those as well. But the problem with this mentality is it oftentimes leads to force toward other people. Like trying to force our beliefs on them. Or force their thinking. At its very worst, this idea was held up by Emperor Constantine way back in the 4th century and it led to forced conversions at the sword. Or later on, the Crusades. I think it's worth noting that the Puritans escaped the British Empire because they didn't want a forceful church that was wed together with the state. When the state and the church are wed together, the church always loses. And so they left that as it was in Great Britain because they wanted freedom of religion here. The the force mentality has certain elements that appeal to us because we want to win. I, I, I get it. But Paul says to us, our battle is not against flesh and blood, but against the powers and principalities of this dark world. And the powers and principalities of this dark world are Satan and dark spiritual forces. That's what he's referring to. 
And so our weapons are not the weapons of this world, which is typically power over and money and those kinds of things. Our weapons are the weapons of love and humility and prayer and the gospel of peace and the word of God. These are our weapons. It's a very, very different model. Jesus, of course, disposed of this model Well, when he said, my kingdom is not of this world. If it were, I would have taken it by force. So he says explicitly, no, we do not take a Christ against culture uh, model or a force type model. That would be like in the world and fighting against the world. That's another way that many Christians have engaged culture over the years. A third way that's become more prevalent over the past decades is what I would term a frequent flyer approach to culture. So this is where culture's going, and I'm going to get on my frequent flyer program, and I'm going to go with culture. And this is kind of the idea that the culture is getting more and more consumeristic, more and more hedonistic, more and more opulent, and I kind of follow along with that as the culture increasingly moves away from the clear teaching of Scripture, and that movement away from Scripture starts to impact the church such that the church impacts, such that the church mimics the world more and more. Have you noticed this? Okay, this is alive and well right now. It's kind of eat, drink, and be merry. Okay? Live an indulgent and opulent life just like the world out there, and then you die. I think a lot of people who take this approach see Jesus as their Savior, but not as their Lord. Okay, so they go to Jesus to forgive them, but they don't see Jesus as their Lord who would rule over every area of life to say, all that I have, I depend on you, I obey you, and I submit to you. When I first started off in ministry some 20 years ago, I did not need to convince anyone that pornography was incredibly addictive to men and incredibly exploitive of women. I didn't have to convince anyone. I mean, it was still a problem back then, don't get me wrong, But everyone knew that it was a problem, and they knew that that was exploitive of women. Women are terribly abused in that industry, and it's terribly addictive to the male brain. Today, I have to convince people of that. Okay, it's it's a big, big change. 20 years ago, when I first started ministry, I didn't need to convince anyone that part and parcel of being a Christian was reaching out to the least, the last, and the lost. Today, I have to convince people of that. That that's just a normal operation well, within the Christian life is that we would reach out to those who are stuck, who are hurting, that are the least, the last, the lost, for whatever reason. And we love them with empathy right where they are. Today, I have to convince that. When I first started off in ministry 20 years ago, I didn't need to convince anyone that greed was a terrible vice and generosity was a beautiful virtue. But today, in the church, that has to be stated again and again. You see, the frequent flyer program changes Jesus' statement, be in the world but not of the world, to be in the world and also of the world. Both of those. Now, fortunately, Scripture would give us a fourth option, and that's where we'll spend our time here, though, the remainder of the day. I wonder if you'd read the, this verse from 2 Corinthians chapter 5 up on the screen. Would you read it out loud well with me? I'm sorry, 2 Corinthians 2. This is the Apostle Paul, 2 Corinthians 2, 14 through 15. And he's going to say the same thing that Jesus is about to say in Matthew chapter 5. Read this with me. God uses us to spread the knowledge of Christ everywhere like a sweet perfume. Our lives are a Christ-like fragrance rising up to God. 
Okay, so imagine that. This is the fourth paradigm through which we would engage the culture around us, the model as given from Jesus, that we would not be a force or a fortress or a frequent flyer. We'd be the fragrance of God. We would be the sweet aroma of Christ. That when you walk into the workplace, people say, ooh, would you get a whiff of that? Come on. That's tasty. That smells good. That person, I want to be around her a little bit more. The sweet aroma of Christ coming from us, not a literal aroma, I know, okay? The sweet fragrance of Christ that people interact with us is there is something very different about them. Man, they got this backbone of steel that we talked about last week. But there's such humility in, which, in the way that they communicate their convictions. They're full of truth, but even more, they seem to be full of grace. They're merciful to whomever they interact with. There's a sweet generosity to their spirit that's mysterious. And when I'm around them, I want more of that. This, I believe, is Christ's model for how we would engage the world around us as kingdom of God citizens. He says the same thing here in Matthew 5, verses 13 to 16. The words of Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount, you, my friends, You and I, ordinary folks like us, are the salt of the earth. But if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot. You, my friends, ordinary followers of Christ like you and me, are the light of the world. A town or a city built on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way... You, my friends, let your light shine before others, that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. So remember, the first 12 verses of the Sermon on the Mount, which we spent the last two weeks on, are called the Beatitudes. And if you remember from the last two weeks, the theme of the Beatitudes is you can be broken down, stuck in the mud, you can be a nobody in this world, and yet you are a somebody to God. The theme of the Beatitudes is you may be persecuted, you may be poor in spirit right now, you may be riddled down by anxiety or depression, you may be cast off by other people right now, you may be mourning right now, you may think you don't matter right now, but every person matters. That's the theme of the Beatitudes, that no matter how far away you are from God, you're not too far from the long arm of the Lord. Okay, that he can reach you right where you are. These are not... The kinds of states of being that any of us would like, you don't work yourself up to the statements in the Beatitudes. No, it's just a promise that if you're in an ugly state where you're stuck in the mud, God is still very near to you. And into that context, we talked about the last two weeks, so thinking of people that this world regularly disposes of, Jesus says, you matter to me, the kingdom of the heavens is near to you right now by faith in Jesus Christ, and... Not only is the kingdom of the heavens near to you, I want to use you as the salt of the earth and the light of the world. Here's the big idea I hope you take home from this morning's message. The invisible kingdom becomes tangible through how we live. The invisible kingdom of God becomes tangible by the way you and I choose to live for the glory of God. So unlike the kingdoms of this world, the kingdom of God doesn't have a government structure. There's no capital building. But the kingdom of God does become tangible. It becomes like a fragrance. 
It becomes like a sweet aroma. It becomes like salt and like light for the world around us by the way that we live. So much in the same way that you cannot grasp salt after it's been cooked into the meat, at least in my experience, the brisket takes a whole lot better when it has some salt on it, right? Okay, it's been cooked into the brisket and it's all the better afterwards. So also, you might buy some fireworks on July 1st with the excitement looming to shoot them off on July 4th. How absurd it would be just to leave those fireworks in the box and not light them up, right? But you light them up on July 4th with this desire to see these beautiful lights in the sky. And when you do, you say, wow, the beauty of the July sky and the noise and the smell and everything else. Likewise, a fragrance can change the feel in a room. It's the same idea. God intends to change us from ordinary people that are oftentimes way down low, stuck in the mud, or way up high, wherever we might be right now, ordinary people like us into a salty, shiny kingdom. He desires that we would be a city of God inside the cities of man in which we dwell. That the way we live, the way we pray, the way we reach out to others would literally be thy kingdom come, thy will be done here in my life as it's always done in heaven. In my little world as it's always done in heaven, would you please extend your beautiful rule and reign in my life, in the life of my family, and in the systems that I am a part of, whether it be my neighborhood or my workplace or my school, wherever I go, may my life conform to your will. And in one sense, though, this message was not new. Like back in the Old Testament, though the people of Israel were told to do much the same thing, they oftentimes failed to follow God's decree to do that. You go all the way back to the book of Genesis, and the people of, of Israel, starting with Abraham, and then Abraham's descendants, were told, I'm going to bless you so that you'd be a blessing to others for that purpose. Not for your own benefit, but so that you'd be a blessing to others. Likewise, in Jeremiah chapter 29, the people of Israel are gone into exile in a nation called Babylon. So literally, they're now foreigners in Babylon for 70 years. And during a 70-year exile in the worst of the worst empires, in the worst city called Babylon, God says to Israel, plant gardens, build houses, get married, have families, bless the city that I have called you into exile. He says literally, Jeremiah 29, 7, seek the welfare of the city of Babylon that I have called you into exile. I, I, I know this is not your citizenship. You're a citizen of Israel, and for right now you're in exile in Babylon. But seek the peace and the welfare of the city I have called you into exile. Pray to the Lord on its behalf, because in its welfare so also you shall have welfare. Wow. Now, last time I checked, Carney's a lot better than Babylon. So we would seek the peace and prosperity, the welfare, the blessing of the city, the region all around us. We'd be a fragrance. This is part of the story of God that goes all the way back to Genesis. It goes all the way to Revelation because the basic theme, the basic arch of the story of God goes something like this. It's the loving advancement of God's kingdom for God's glory. That's what the Bible's about. From Genesis to Revelation, the loving advancement of God's kingdom for God's glory. What's different for us right now is that we have the Holy Spirit. Okay, so the people of the Old Testament, well, we're called to this as well, but we're actually able to do this in a different way because Jesus' Spirit lives in you and me. Wow, the Holy Spirit dwells in us so we can love those that we don't really like. Come on. We can love those we don't really like. We can be humble toward those who are prideful and on and on. 
This is what Jesus is getting at in the Sermon on the Mount. In fact, he's telling these dear folks in a large crowd on the hillside that he's preaching to right now, he's telling them how they are to live as saved followers of Christ even before he's told them how to be saved. Get your mind around that for a moment. He hasn't even told them how to become followers of Christ. He's starting with, when you become followers of Christ, this is how I want you to live. As salt of the earth and light of the world. And in a thousand different ways, he would invite us to be just that. Salt of the earth and light of the world. Friends, you've probably heard this statement before. It's been said in a number of different speakers. Like the two most important days of your life are the day you're born and the day you figure out why you're born. The day you're born and the day you figure out why you're born. And the reason why you were born is to be the salt of the earth and the light of the world. In 500 different manifestations across this room, that's the reason Jesus came to us and saved us by grace through faith, that we would be the pleasing aroma of Christ wherever we would go, that we would be different in a magnetic kind of way for the world around us. So how do we do that? I want to give you two ways, though, that we can do that even though this week. Number one is this. Sprinkle some more salt on all of your interactions. Sprinkle, sprinkle more salt on every single one of your interaction even this week. You think about what salt does. It does two different things. Now, number one, salt is a preservative, right? So for us, if we're the salt of the earth, we are preservative against the world's moral decay. There's a lot of moral decay out there that we notice all the time, but if we are the salt of the earth, we operate as a preservative, a countercultural influence against the world's decay. The second thing that the salt does is it provides flavor. Okay, And so we provide wonderful flavor to a bitter and bland world all around us. That by virtue of being around us, people would say, wow, these followers of Christ are just so winsome and loving in the way they come to you. Is that what people mostly get from the church? Winsome, loving, humble, merciful? They should. Sometimes they do, sometimes they don't. But that's what they should get. We would sprinkle salt on all of our interactions. Again, this is the story of the whole Bible. Colossians chapter 4 puts it this way, the Apostle Paul. He says, be wise in the way you act toward outsiders. Okay? In all of your interactions, well, with outsiders, be very wise in how you think about people outside of the church. In all of those interactions, be very, very intentional, he's saying. Then he goes on to say, make the most of every single opportunity that God gives you. Look for the opportunities though, that he might provide for you to be the salt of the earth and the light of the world. And then he says, let all of your conversation always be full of grace. What does that mean? To be full of grace means to treat people better than they deserve. So all the people that you like and you don't like, how can I treat them better than they deserve? And all of your interactions be full of grace. And then season your interactions well with some salt. And as you season your interactions well with some salt, then you'll be able to give an answer to anyone who asks. You'll be able to give an answer to everyone who asks you about the hope that is within you in Jesus Christ. So to sprinkle salt on all of our interactions, what would be asking questions like this. How can I be curious? How can I show people that I'm interested in them? That they're not an interruption to me? How can I leave people with a smile? How can I show people that they're welcome in my presence? How can I show people who disagree with me in a prideful kind of way that I'm still going to be humble with them. This would be sprinkling some salt on our different interactions. And when people experience that, it causes them to really take notice. We want to think about how we're coming across with our neighbors, 
Are we sprinkling salt on all of our interactions? Think about how we're coming across at the grocery store. Think about how we're coming across to fellow students or maybe athletes if you're a coach. What, do, what, what are the athletes on, their te- on your team? What do they get from you? Is, is it grace? Is it salt? Those kinds of things. How do I come across to anyone that I might interact with online? What if we as Christians always promised to ourselves, I will season some salt and offer a whole lot of grace in every online interaction? What if? Come on. Would the church then start to shine like the church? You see, the problem online is the church imitates the world. But in all, right, in all of our interactions, if we're always full of grace, seasoned with salt, then people notice there's something very different about that. That's salty in a good way. I want some more of what they got. Who can you think of who in all of their interactions is gracious, winsome, salty? We want to think about those examples who have grace and have salt in all of their interactions because it's tasty and it makes the world say, I want more of what they have inside the family of God. After telling us to be the salt of the earth, Jesus says we're to be the light of the world, that we're to be a city on a hill. Who is it that's supposed to be a city on a hill? Anyone? Us? Yeah. The church? Is it a nation? Is it a nation? No. This was not given to America. This was not given to Israel. This is given to the church. The church is to be the city of God inside the broader cities of man. We, ordinary men and women like us, followers of Christ, are to be the light of the world. Okay, we're to be a city on a hill that light up the darker corners of our communities. As kingdom influencers, there is a certain temptation to kind of curse the darkness out there. What Jesus invites us to do instead is to light a candle in the darkness. We don't curse the darkness while we light a candle in the darkness. So the second thing what we do is this. We get rid of the bowl and we let our light shine. We get rid of the bowl and we let our light shine. A lamp, in Jesus' analogy here, back in the first century, a lamp would look like this. It's a simple, shallow bowl that would be filled with olive oil, and there would be a wick that would go down into it. And Jesus is just giving a really simple explanation that they'd put a wick down in, they would light it, they put it on a lampstand, and it provides some light to the room. And then he says, how absurd would it be to light up a room for just a moment with a lamp like that and then put a bowl over it? You say, that'd be absurd. Like, you don't light a lamp and then snuff it out immediately. We would say, you don't buy fireworks and then not light them off. You don't just put them in a box. That would be absurd. So also he would be saying, how absurd would it be to be a kingdom of God citizen, a follower of Jesus Christ, and not let your light shine to those outside of the kingdom? We are called to let our light shine to those outside the kingdom that they would experience more of the love and the joy and the warmth of Christ. Let me tell you a little story about how this happened in the early uh, years of Christianity. There's a little group that was called Galileans. Before they were called Christians, they were oftentimes judges called Galileans. And they were a very, very small sect inside the huge Roman Empire. And sometimes, well, we don't realize this, but, but Christianity started so small. Like a few years after Jesus' death and resurrection, it was just five, 6,000 people out of a Roman Empire of about 60 million people. There's no such thing as Christianity prior to that. And in this huge Roman Empire, within the course of just 300 years, it became the dominant religion. And sometimes we forget to pause and ask, why? How did it get there? 
So in the second century AD, there was an enormous pandemic that swept across the entirety of the Roman Empire that went from modern-day Iran over to Spain, most of Europe, down to North Africa, swept across the entire empire, and that pandemic killed off one-third of the empire. Okay, Smallpox swept across the other empire, and the priests within the Roman Empire, the pagan priests who did uh, the work of the Greek gods or the Roman gods or where the priests fought for the emperor, you know where they went? They had the resources to go up to the hills. And they did. They got out of Dodge. You know what Christians did? As a very small minority, they stayed and they nursed the sick. They nursed their own sick and they also nursed the pagan sick. And many of them died in the process, but many others were saved in the process, both physically and then ultimately spiritually, because of the love of ordinary Christians living out their God-given call to be salt of the world and light, or salt of the earth and light of the world. You fast forward another century, and in the third century, another pandemic swept across the entirety of the Roman Empire, and another third of the remaining empire was wiped out by that measles pandemic. A third, two different times. The pagan priests, where'd they go? They went to the hills. Christians, where'd they go? They stayed in the valley. And they nursed the sick. And many, many, many people likewise were saved, first physically and then spiritually as well. Likewise, now this time, women were not only second-class citizens, women were oftentimes abused. And Roman military could do whatever it wanted to women any time. They were kind of considered property. And uh, women didn't have a right in a court of law. They didn't have any vote. They didn't have any of that. And in walks Jesus And in his inner circle are women. And amongst the early church planters and deacons are women. And he treats them totally as equals. So much so that the Apostle Peter, in one of the very first letters in the New Testament, he says, treat women as equal partners in the kingdom of God. Indeed, give them special honor because they tend to be physically weaker. Not always, but on average. Because women are oftentimes physically a little weaker, give them special honor the Apostle Peter said. And so women were very attracted to the early teachings of Jesus and the early church. And again, it started to grow. Because the Roman Empire so looked down on women, you know which babies were regularly killed? The females. And so there's this huge differential in the Roman Empire but between male babies and female babies that lived. And a huge disproportion as they grew up. There are far more males than females in the Roman Empire. But Christians entered in and as parents would dispose of their female babies, Christians oftentimes rescued those female babies and cared for them and adopted them and built the first orphanages and helped them to live and thrive. Okay? And as this happened, over the course of a couple centuries, huge numbers of women and the poor and family started converting to Christ in massive numbers. And in the 4th century, Emperor Julian was really troubled by this, how Christianity had become the dominant religious force in an empire of 60 million people. And he was one of the last emperors to welcome emperor worship. And as he's welcoming emperor worship, he's simultaneously trying to build up the worship of different pagan Greek gods. And as he's kind of sprucing up their temples, he notices people are not coming to the gods of the Greeks that they previously worshipped a century ago. He's very, very troubled by this, and so he writes to one of his pagan priests, frustrated by the growth of Christianity, says this, nothing has contributed to the progress of the superstition of these Christians as their charity to others. 
Like the reason they have progressed so much is because they're so loving to other people. The impious Galileans, another name for Christian, provide charity not only for their own poor, but to ours as well. What are we going to do about them? <laughs> like I see that they constantly serve those that we dispose of. Julian didn't see their worship, but friends, their worship was there. And he didn't see their beautiful little house church communities of 25 or 50 people where they're in these beautiful communities supporting each other through all the persecution that they experienced, but that was there. What he saw was the invisible kingdom made tangible through the lives of these very ordinary people that were disposed of by the Roman Empire. And the result was this mass of people saying, I want the salt, I want the light, I want the pleasing aroma that these Christians have. And the rest is history. The Roman Empire was turned upside down and then Christianity went across the world because ordinary men and women like you and me, way back then, decided to live their lives on the basis of this simple ministry model in the kingdom of God that you are made to be salt and light. You are made to be a fragrance everywhere you go. The way Jesus closes out this section of the Sermon on the Mount is so instructive for us. He says simply this, and with this I'll close. Simple, ordinary brothers and sisters like us, let your light so shine before men and women that they may see your good deeds. And they may be so amazed by your good deeds, so blessed by the uniqueness of your love and your humility and your service that they want more and eventually, they praise our Father in heaven. Thank you for joining us this morning for a favorite message from Pastor Adrian Boykin from Carney E. Free. If you'd like to hear this message again or more like it, check out Heard on Air on the MyBridge Radio app or online at mybridgeradio.net.